0: Hello, everyone this is mark c crowley and you're listening to the lead from the heart podcast very early in my career i was fortunate enough to work for people who not only saw my potential but who also gave me increasingly more challenging assignments and promotions without my ever asking for them and it was a consequence of their highly supportive behavior that i grew conditioned to believe my results as a leader would always speak for themselves but as i sought to progress to even higher levels on the career ladder I inevitably came to realize that I was mistaken. No matter how great my results were, they weren't always enough for me to win the attention of top executives and maintain my speedy ascent into roles that I very much wanted. And as you might imagine, my sudden lack of progress greatly frustrated and discouraged me. And that is until I finally had the epiphany that what I needed more than great performance to get noticed was some kind of an edge. So if you've ever felt underestimated, unseen, or even unfairly passed over in your career as I once did, today's podcast is devoted to giving you the remedy. My guest today is Harvard Business School professor Laura Huang, and her new book, coincidentally called Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage, is being published just this week. And after reading Laura's book and discussing it with her for this podcast, I so greatly wish that I'd had her insights years ago when I first felt stymied and at a loss for what to do next. And as you're about to hear, Laura believes that success in life is really just about the quality of our ideas, credentials, skills, or even effort. Instead, achieving success hinges on how well we shape others' perceptions of our strengths as well as our flaws. And it's about creating our own edge by confronting the factors that seem like shortcomings and turning them into assets that make other people take notice. The cold truth of her message is that none of us can afford to wait for other people to make fair decisions on our behalf. Creating an edge for ourselves is a proactively positive way to succeed in a rather imperfect system. Through extensive research, Laura has landed on four powerful ways each of us can create our own edge, and we're about to discuss all of them in great detail. As background, Laura Huang earned both a bachelor's and master's degree in electrical engineering from Duke University, an MBA from INSEED, and a PhD from the University of California, Irvine. And we are thrilled to have you on the podcast just as your book comes out. A warm welcome to you, Laura Huang.
1: Thanks so much. appreciate you having me on.
0: Well, I know it's very late where you are in Boston, and so thank you for making time to do this.
1: Oh, not late at all. This is midday for us. Yeah, <laughs> you, you high
0: achievers. <laughs> well, let me get into your book a little bit, because I really loved it. And it's frankly, it's a topic that we've never even come close to talking about on the podcast. And so in an early part of our new year here, this is kind of a cool way to get things going you said that the book is basically about creating an edge. And in other words, how can we harness our own personality and strengths, even our weaknesses to create a unique advantage? So I have a two parter here. My first question is, why do we need the edge? Why do we need an edge? And I guess my next and bigger question is, what influenced you to make this information your first book?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, those are great questions. In terms of why we need an edge, part of the premise of this book is that some people naturally have an advantage, and other people have to create an advantage for themselves. And so when we think about the fact that we all wish to succeed, we don't always know how. So what oftentimes happens is we think we need to change who we are, or fit the mold of someone who we think is the pinnacle of success, or contort ourselves to replicate that model. But if we can create our own unique advantage, our own edge, then we can actually go and get much further. What happens a lot of times is that when we think about success, it's always about hard work, right? We're taught from a very young age, work hard, work hard, work hard. And working hard is absolutely critical to success, but hard work alone leaves a lot of people frustrated. Right? You can take two people who work hard and work just as hard as each other, and one person will be more successful than the other. And the reason why that happens is because a lot of success and a lot of outcomes are driven by perceptions and signals and external things that are out of our control. And so when we're able to take the perceptions and attributions of others and take those obstacles and challenges and stereotypes and flip them in our favor and create our own edge, that's when our hard work actually works harder for us. And so what I really wanted to do when I was writing this book was to communicate that to to readers where, you know, I was doing a lot of research, studying people who are underestimated and situations where there was a lot of inequality and disadvantage, and really wanted to just share these stories of everyday people who were facing these challenges, but still able to empower themselves to create their own edge.
0: I love the idea that you really wrote this book for people who feel underestimated, because I think that's probably true of a lot of people, at least people who work in a corporate environment or a setting where, you know, there's enough opportunity to grow and yet they get passed over or not even considered. And the sort of bitterness and confusion that that creates. Yeah. You imply in the book that there's sort of some people that sort of have a natural advantage. And I don't know what that is. So who has a natural advantage in life?
1: Yeah, it really differs by situation. When we think about the word advantage, our minds oftentimes go to, you know, the white male tall sort of leader that we typically think has an advantage. But one of the things that I talk about in the book is that we all have something, right? We all have something that we feel is holding us back and it could be gender or race or sexual orientation or a variety of other things. But there's also things that are sort of invisible things. There are, you know, we could go into situations and in certain situations, we feel like one thing is giving us a disadvantage and in other situations, it's something else. And so it's really the fact that we need to both understand who we are, our own vulnerabilities, our own strengths, our weaknesses, and be able to both find and create our own edge. We need to be able to understand the perceptions and the attributes. Contributions that others are making of us so that we can sort of guide and understand the way that we can be the most successful and still be providing value in a larger, more holistic way.
0: So what triggered this work in you? How'd you land here?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of it is based on the research that I've done both in the early stages of my career as well as more recently. For example, a lot of sort of the challenges I felt myself informed the research that I ended up doing. I looked at, for example, accents and people who are in the United States, but yet have accents or have what's considered a non-standard kind of American accent, whether you're an immigrant or whether you have some sort of a, a difference in the way you speak or your communication style. And so, for example, I found that People who had an accent were less likely to get promoted to top management positions. People who had an accent were less likely to get venture capital financing for their startups. And what happens is that we think about why that might be a lot of the lay assumptions is that it's about communication. And so we know, for example, that we can't bias against somebody when hiring based on their accent. And so instead, what happens is we we decide upon criteria Things like, can this person think outside the box? Are they interpersonally influential? Various characteristics like that. And so in some of my research, what I found, I actually tested and found that it wasn't about communication. In fact, when I randomly assigned people to to listening to different speakers and then asked them, like, what are the three things that you learn from this person? I found that people were just as likely to learn things from people with accents than those without, if not more. But instead, what it was, was that people with accents were less likely to be rated high on things like thinking outside the box, interpersonal influence, likability. And so they weren't getting hired for, for positions for the exact same reasons that we had already decided were the criteria that were important. And so what I've really tried to do is figure out how we can inoculate against these sorts of disadvantages and biases how we can actually empower ourselves when we do realize that there are these perceptions and attributions made about us. In the case of accents, for example, it's simple things like when you go into an interview situation and, and realize that you're going to be deemed as less interpersonally influential, making sure that you say things like, let me tell you about a time when I fought for resources for my team. Or let me tell you about a time where I faced this challenge and was able to, and you, you, you sort of demonstrate how you have that interpersonal influence, or you have the ability to think outside the box, directly addressing those very perceptions that were giving you an obstacle in the first place. I love
0: the word inoculate and how you just used it. And it's sort of this perfect segue into my next question, which has to do with the end of your book, where you (laughs) describe a rather dystopian world that we're living in. And I just pulled out some of the things that you said. And together, they all sort of stunned me. You know, one alone might not have. But so you say success is really a meritocracy. The deck is often stacked against us. Life isn't fair. We will suffer disappointments we will be screwed over and there will be haters. And you say that we can either fester in this knowledge or we can leverage it to make us better and gain an edge. And so out of that context, what I think you're saying and quite soberly is that, you kind of made this point a minute ago, is that hard work and effort alone won't cut it. And if we wanna be successful in our careers, our results simply can't stand on their own. A lesson that I learned in my career and we'll talk about in a little while, But my question to you, Laura, is are we living in a cruel world or is there more nuance to this?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think there's a little bit of both, right? The world can be incessantly cruel and often it's crueler to some than it is to others. But there are so many redeeming nuances that we should take heart in. And that was part of the impetus for writing this book, right, is that there are all of these Situations that leave us bitter and sort of leave us feeling like life isn't fair. And what I really wanted was to show that there are ways to empower ourselves, that we're not kind of stuck in these sort of cruel situations. And what I find is that the world is both at its cruelest when we haven't equipped ourselves with certain tools or know how, so to speak. There are many people out there who will take advantage of folks in those situations. And so that's sort of this dystopian point of view. But there are also incredible role models and champions of those that are underestimated and disadvantaged. And so you only need to kind of look at what we're seeing in terms of trends, in terms of leadership to see that there is this great collective power that's combating that. And that's sort of really where I'd love to see this taking people, right? And the book doesn't offer a cure-all, right? This is not a, a quick solution, but what it does instead is offer this perspective, perspective for you to kind of see what are your own strengths? What are your own vulnerabilities? how can you take who you are all of the varied versions of who you are and really guide and both create and find your edge so that you can again make that hard work work harder for you so that it's not just hard work alone that feels like it's not enough
0: so i don't really think that there's going to be anybody listening to this that isn't going to agree that it's a It's a rough world out there. Before we get into practices, if you will, or different ways that we can all gain an edge, just pin down that this isn't manipulative or overtly Machiavellian, you know, really competitive. I got to beat the other guy. That's not really where you're coming from on this.
1: No, not at all. Right. And so to some extent, when there's so much built into this word edge and advantage alone, that it makes us think that it is a very Machiavellian kind of thing. But in fact, this is not something that's strategic at all, right? We sometimes think that when we're managing the impressions of others, that there's something very strategic, almost sleazy happening when we're doing that. But instead, it's it's very much, you know, people are going to have first impressions of us. People are going to have impressions of us, whether we give them one or not, right? Right. And so when we're able to really know who we are and guide how other people see us, it's very much a more authentic thing where we're guiding them to how we really are and who we really are, rather than having them come up with a or decide for themselves and then us feeling like we have to correct that perception or put in the effort or engage in what then will be more strategic sort of efforts. And so it's really about guiding and empowering ourselves so that there's a much more accurate and realistic and therefore beneficial view of who we really are.
0: Okay. I love that. And, and that you just articulated it in a way that you didn't in the book, <laughs> but it, you imbued it in the book. So I never really had a sense that this was, you know, it's a cruel world out there. So I got to get mine, you know, like this scarcity mindset that says there's not enough for everyone. And so I got to beat the next guy. That's not where you're coming from. And the thing that you just said that I really love was we've all been in a situation where we, we had to take months or years to correct the perception that someone had of us. So you find out later, oh, this is how you're seen, or you've been judged this way. And you're like, what? Like, how did that happen? Like, that's not who I am. And then you have to reinvest with people and try to get them to see you over time. And what you're really saying is, if you know yourself well enough and you know how you want to be seen, that the inherent edge, to use your language, is to be able to present that right up front so people see it from the get-go and there's no ambiguity about it and there's no confusion later on that might harm you and your chances to grow, progress, get promoted, et cetera, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, a lot of times we expect that our hard work will speak for itself. And that's part of the problem. A lot of things don't speak for itself. And so it isn't a strategic thing at all, when we do help guide that process to what it actually is, to helping people to kind of see where we bring value, helping people to see where the effort we put in is going to be useful and enrich lots of what's happening in organizations. And so it's actually very much the opposite of this Machiavellian and strategic sort of thinking.
0: How did we come to believe that hard work stands out, by the way? How did we get all convinced <laughs> by this? Because the dynamics that you're talking about are universal and, you know, throughout history, right? So yeah, how did we get yeah. ourselves so convinced? Were we told this? <laughs> you, know?
1: I, you know, I think it's something that we're really, we are, we're taught this from a very young age. And what I even see now, both as a parent and observing lots of parents, you know, I have parents who come to me and they're like, what do I do? You know, my kids, they just don't seem like they're hard workers or how do I give them an advantage? And my answer is sort of, and what I really try to answer through the book is for parents, we need to stop trying to give our kids an edge and instead try and teach them how to create and cultivate their own edge. That's going to serve them much better. And when we do that, it also, you know, helps us kind of get beyond this, hard work will speak for itself. Yet behind the scenes, you see all these parents trying to give their kids these advantages.
0: Well, why don't we get into these strategies that you have? And so the first way that you suggest that we can guide others in the perceptions that they have of us is what you call enriching. Yes. So tell us what this means, how to do it, why it's important. I'll just give you the floor.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, I'm not sure that this comes across, you know, as crisply, but having an edge, the E-D-G-E, that actually stands for what we're going to, you know, enrich, delight, guide, and effort, right? So that's really the framework for creating and finding your own edge. And the first, of course, is enrich, right, which is the value we bring to others. And the second is delight, which is finding ways to give others some sort of something unexpected so that it gives us the canvas, right? It gives us the entree into being able to show them how we delight. And the G is guiding others in the perceptions they have of us, right? So once you've been able to get that kind of entrance through delighting them and they're giving you that opportunity and you can show them how you enrich, it's about continuing to guide the perceptions that they have and so if we start with Enrich, this is at its simplest level, adding value. It can be enhancing a, a project or a team or providing something that really provides and adds that value. In order to do that, you need to understand your own competencies and weaknesses and really harness this insightful and incisive observation of of your surroundings and the gaps that you can fill. And it also entails really following your intuitive compass. And so this entire process, enriching in general, is because you have an edge when others believe that you have the ability to enrich and add value.
0: There's a quote in the book from Charlie Munger, who's the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. And he says, figure out what your aptitudes are. If you play games where other people have the aptitude and you don't, you're going to lose. So it struck me. I want to ask you, why is finding our best lane the best way to delight? And how do we find our own best lane?
1: Yeah, so there's a couple of things here, right? The first is, when we say we sort of give this advice, when people are going into situations, and we say, be yourself, right? Just be yourself. And figuring out what your aptitudes are is realizing, first and foremost, that there is no be yourself. There's so many versions of yourself. (laughs) So it's really be yourselves, right? We are nuanced people. And in different situations and in different contexts, we're like diamonds, where if you look at a diamond from various different angles, it's going to sparkle and shine differently based on the angle you look at it. And that's how people are as well. And so figuring out what your aptitude is really about understanding and being cognizant of your surroundings And then knowing what angles people are going to see and what type of shine they're going to see and, and so on and so forth. And so you play games when you try and be something that you're not, but you can also, you know, really enrich by showing people that you're a multifaceted person, that you have lots of different parts of yourself. And so that entails both your strengths and your weaknesses. And your weaknesses are a part of you just as your strengths are. And so understanding those allows you to kind of, to again, back to the diamond analogy, right? Know which angles to show when.
0: How do I leverage my weaknesses to enrich?
1: You know, there is this debate that has, or not even a debate, but there's different schools of thought. There is one school of thought is like, think about your weaknesses and try and improve upon them, right? Right. But what happens is like we have our strengths and we have our weaknesses. And in some situations, it's better to just make those things that are strengths really, really like those are things that we're already good at. And so as leaders, right, capitalizing on those, and if we double down on those, it makes us truly spectacular. And what we just need to do is make sure that our weaknesses aren't liabilities, And in other situations, we see people who have these strengths and weaknesses and they spend so much time turning their weaknesses into something that will be a strength rather than taking what their strengths already are, and putting just that little bit of extra effort to make it something really spectacular. So it's things like that, knowing which context, and that's sort of the finding your best lane, knowing the best ways to to kind of enrich.
0: Something else that actually that you did personally in your career and getting a position at Wharton after you got your PhD and then to Harvard was that you decided i'm going to go where it's less crowded where your uniqueness can stand out so very much aligned to what you just said so what have you learned on this and maybe even share your own your own story
1: yeah absolutely so i mean i think in terms of my own academic career I did not take the normal path that other people took. And there was a number of reasons for that, right? I went to a school that was relatively lower in status than other people. So my PhD was from a school that was relatively lower status, wasn't particularly known for research. It was a fabulous program and it provided lots of benefits that I would never give up. But, you know, I didn't have the typical sort of resume that other people had, right? I didn't have the publication record, I didn't have the typical things that people would expect. But what I did have was this belief in the topic that I was studying. And I really believed in that topic. And in fact, even when people said, you should be studying something else, you're never going to get a job based on this topic. I stood out because it was an interesting topic that was very different I was studying gut feel and how people make decisions based on their gut feel vis-a-vis sort of economic, financial, other hard data that's out there. And this was an interesting question that people really hadn't answered, right? How do you quantify somebody's gut feel? And that somewhat unintendedly did provide me with an edge. It was something interesting, very different, and it kind of counteracted what I didn't have the sort of weaknesses that I did have in my resume.
0: So I want to talk about that work in a second, but I want to dig into this just a little bit and ask you if you really feel that, so was that intentional I mean, you went to UC Irvine, which is, you know, UC system is highly regarded. But in your sense of I didn't go to Cambridge or Oxford or Harvard. So I'm a little bit deficient here. So were you choosing? I, I mean, that's a value judgment that many people would say no. But I get why you feel that way. But when you saw yourself in that context, did you say, I need to pick a different lane? Or how did you come about making that decision? Because you said that you have people saying, hey, Laura, this isn't going to end well for you. You're not going to get where you want to go with this. And yet you used what I think is your intuition to do work on your intuition, right? This gut instinct thing. So tell us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a couple of things there that you're touching upon that I think are really interesting, right? I think the first was UC Irvine is a spectacular institution. I mean, it was the right choice for me. So there's lots of programs out there that are very, very intense. In fact, when I first became an assistant professor, I remember talking with one of my colleagues and my colleague was saying something around how he only heard from his advisor once every three months. And whenever he did, it was for his advisor to yell at him and tell him all of the things he was doing wrong. Mm. Whereas I was very fortunate in the sense that I had an amazing advisor who I never once doubted had my best interest at heart. I was surrounded by people who were so collegial, so collaborative, and that was something that I really needed. So I was very intentional in the sense that I wanted an environment where even if I wasn't going to be working with the most prestigious projects or that I was going to be well-trained and that I was going to be trained in a collaborative environment that really fit me. And again, the research world is brutal sometimes, and so it's not necessarily just based on the status of the institution. It's also based on the research productivity, faculty, lots of different things. And so I was very intentional in knowing myself and knowing what environment would be best for me. In terms of the actual thesis and my dissertation, that was less intentional. I wasn't necessarily writing a dissertation as a protest against the standard PhD program or the dissertation. But rather, I wrote it because it was an interesting idea that had cropped up over my career before I entered the PhD program. It was this nagging observation that I had about how people would make decisions when they would seemingly be about the data, but it was actually based on gut instinct and gut feel. And so I sort of followed this observation into my research. And ultimately, it became my dissertation, because it was very authentic to me. And it was a true source of curiosity.
0: Well, there's two things that come to my mind here. One is that you were attracted to a nurturing environment, the way you just described your friend who had the screaming once a quarter conversation or having somebody who really, truly cared about you. So that plays very well into our theme here. But much more so is this notion that you were looking at intuition and saying that, Like it or not, people are influenced by emotions, feelings, and their intuitions in how they make important business decisions, including investments. So give us a little bit of an overview of this, because I think this is really cool.
1: The research itself?
0: Just a synopsis of, you know, what your conclusions were as they relate to gut instinct.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's funny because before I became an academic, before I went into academia, I worked in investment banking. And I had seen, you know, anecdotally what I ended up studying. So I was working on this project very early on. It was essentially this project where a client wanted to acquire one of three companies, right? So there was target A, target B, and target C. And the project that I was assigned to work on was which of these targets should they acquire, right? So I went off and with my team, we had to produce this model, And we spent about two months trying to figure out which of these would be the best acquisition target. So we had, you know, what would happen at different interest rates, at different states of the world, like all of these complex sort of algorithm, this this complex model. And we went back to the VP and we said, okay, here's our analysis, made this huge presentation and said we should acquire target B. And he said to us, well, that's that's all well and good. But, you know, we already decided we're going with target A. So can you now change the model to make it say that we should go with target A? And so that's sort of an example of we make decisions based on our gut feel or our gut instinct a lot. And we use the data to sort of justify that decision we actually made. And later, when I started studying this, I really wanted to understand, like, in what situations do we use our gut feel? And the data are sort of there to buttress our arguments and support what we already knew we wanted to do. And this happens especially in high stakes, highly uncertain content right? This is not like a normal sort of decision where you can weight the probabilities and you can look and see, you know, so this is, we're not talking here about sort of a very emotional type one, type two kind of decision, right? Like the different, you know, the Mm -hmm. type one versus type two types of like, we're not thinking like, it's not, this is not like a thinking fast and slow Mm -hmm. Kahneman kind of thing, right? I started studying how venture capitalists and angel investors make their decisions about which companies to invest in. And this is like, you just don't know. There is no right answer. You could do lots of market trials. You could do focus groups and they could all be telling you that this is going to be a spectacular product or service and it just bombs. Or it can be something like in the early days of Twitter where people were like, what is this? Who is ever going to want this? Or why would we ever want Airbnb? There's such a liability. Who's going to just live in somebody else's house or apartment. And these are just things that you can't predict. And so what my research looked at is how gut feel is that factor that gets you to sort of pull the trigger. Like if you look at any investment decision, none of those decisions should be made, right? Rationally, there's such a high failure rate that you should never be making those decisions. But it's really gut feel, the investor's gut feel that allows them to go for it and pull the trigger because they think or they believe that they've seen some sort of pattern matching or their experience or something that they can buck those statistics. And so really, that's what a lot of my work looks at, is what's encompassed in that gut feel and how does it allow people to justify, post hoc, rationalize all of the sort of hard data that's out there.
0: What's amazing is the story you told about sort of backing in the math, if you will, right? So you have this intuitive sense that, you know, we're gonna pick this option and now we need to make the numbers add up, as opposed to the numbers adding up and making the decision. And so we think we're purely rational. yes. And I think people do that all the time without realizing it, right?
1: That's right. And that is part of what also gives us an edge, right? These mental models and schemas and prototypes and things that we have from our experience that allow us to make decisions, even when others might think that that decision or think that that pathway or that route or that lane is something that you shouldn't take.
0: When you use the word gut instinct, is that a synonymous with intuition and b synonymous with you know your knowingness?
1: It's both. It's a hybrid. And when we think about gut instinct or gut feel, we often think about it as like this very quick emotional sort of thing. And in my research, what I find is that it's actually this combination. It's very cognitive and emotional. We have this sort of knowingness that is both subjective and sharp. And so it's developed over time and through our expertise. And again, this is in context where there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of unknowability Sometimes when we try and explain ourselves or talk ourselves into justifying that gut feel, it makes us not make that decision. It makes that gut feel almost go away. And so it is sort of this knowingness and subjectivity in that sense.
0: I years ago read this quote, Ernest Holmes, The Science of Mind. He said, intuition is God in man,
1: yeah.
0: which, you know, sort of imposed a much grander implication of intuition, meaning that it's not just pattern recognition. Like, so who would say we should create Twitter or Airbnb? Right. But if you have this knowing, this sense that I'm creating something and I like you can't even pin it down intellectually or rationally, but this drive inside of you, kind of like I think what you have, whether you realize it or not, that sort of influenced you to do work that no one else was doing and take the road less traveled, knowing that you were going to end up being successful. That is all very intriguing to me about your work. And I just to pin this down, because I want to get back to the book, what advice do you have? for people listening and people that are managing, people just living their lives to tap into their intuition?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that intuition has its place, has a strong place in business leadership, but it also needs to be thoughtful and intentional if possible. It it becomes very messy when it's unbridled and inexperienced. And so the best way is sort of to sprinkle our intuition into leadership to make sure that the mission and the pulse calls for sort of this subjective cognition.
0: Wonderful. D is for delight. That's right. So describe, describe. (laughs) I didn't actually make that connection until you pointed it out, even though it's obvious. So I'm emphasizing it for my own amusement here. Yeah.
1: I I wanted to be subtle about that. I wanted to sort of see if people picked that up. And so, you know.
0: Oh, for one. (laughs) (laughs) Your first reader didn't pick it up. I probably did when I read it, but as you presented it a few minutes ago, I was like, Oh, So um, I probably should have made a point of that, but it's very clever. So, but tell us about delight.
1: Yeah. I mean, delight is really how we get that opening, right? When we're not the typical person or when we are underestimated, the question is always like, how do we get the attention or how do we get that entrance or how do we get that opportunity, And we often underestimate how our ability to delight can give us that opportunity, that gives us that sort of small opening for which we can then really impact and show show how we can enrich. And so we tend to underestimate how just some sort of positive surprise or some sort of small quirk that makes people pay attention creates that opening.
0: So... One of the things that you point out is that having a sense of humor surely helps. Because I was reading your book and I was thinking about this. I realized in my own career that having a sense of humor absolutely helped me progress. And my mantra is if it's funny to me, it's funny. So, you know, but I think that it created some amusement for people in my early part of my career that I think mm. really helped differentiate me and and delight people. So how do you develop that? You know, how do you, it's not joke telling.
1: Yeah, you don't, it's not, it's not joke telling and it's not even just being funny, right? A lot of times we think, oh no, like, you know, some, some of your listeners are probably like, oh no, I'm not somebody who's like naturally funny and naturally sort of charismatic in that joke telling kind of way. It's really not about that. It's about this element of surprise and this sort of element of being somewhat counterintuitive in this delightful way. And so it comes off like humor, but it's not necessarily humor. It's finding that opening or finding that point of similarity that just catches somebody by surprise and makes them take note, just even for a slight half second, that then allows you to have that opening.
0: Give me an example of that. So something that we can all relate to, that we, not necessarily something that we can mimic exactly, but a model of how it's played out.
1: Yeah, you know, so there was a situation where I was interviewing an investor and this was in the very early days of my career. And it was a very male-dominated industry. This was a firm that was very male-dominated and I came in and I was this very young Female who didn't fit the mold of venture capitalists at all. And incidentally, like I, for whatever reason, I grew up watching the Yankees and have just random statistics about Yankees players and batting averages and things that I just sort of know from following the team for so long. And so I went in and I noticed that this investor had a baseball and it was signed. It was a signed baseball. And I sort of commented on the player and said something offhanded. And that person sort of looked at me and it didn't fit, right? And I I noticed right away that it was sort of like he thought that it was Inauthentic because I. I,
0: Artificial rapport building. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, that I was sort of trying to purposely manage his impressions or something. And so, and this is sort of the opposite, I think, of where a lot of people think I'm going with this, right? Which is that I was a female, I was in there, and I sort of tried to make a connection based on something that he really liked and that I knew something about. But instead, it really backfired on me. And what I sort of realized was he saw me as this sort of young Asian female. And so I said I made some quip very quickly about, oh yeah, well I only know that battering batting average because I'm good at math. Oh. And it caught him by surprise just for a split second. And then he sort of was like, oh, oh, and started like kind oh, of like wow, half embarrassed half not sure what to do, but half also sort of accepting me because it was like, oh, she's Asian, she's good at math, it fits. And then we had this wonderful conversation about his investments, his portfolio, the Yankees. And to this day, you know, I I still keep in touch with him. He sent me a baseball a couple of years ago with this really cute message that said, can't wait to hit more home runs together. Wow. Right? And it was all from this sort of like observation that I made based on knowing myself, knowing him and the perceptions that he had of me and sort of delighting him just enough based on sort of that mutual understanding and knowingness.
0: You have to be really present to pull off something like that. I think that's a big component of this.
1: You have to be present and you also have to know yourself. Right. And so that's the piece about knowing your strengths and your weaknesses, and also knowing how other people perceive you. It's so critical to know how other people are also perceiving you.
0: So I want to make sure we have enough time to get into the G, which is guide. And when I read this chapter, honestly, this was wisdom that I wish I'd had early on in my career, because many years ago, I really did believe in meritocracy, and that my great work would always be recognized. So people can see what I'm doing. They're obviously going to reward this. And I discovered that people developed perspectives on me that weren't always accurate. They weren't accurately informed and that they limited me. So tell us how we can guide the course of our career rather than settle for the course of actions that other people decide for us and why that's such an important edge.
1: Yeah. I mean, just like as I was speaking about before, there's this inward-facing piece of it and there's this outward-facing piece of it. And so in order to guide the course of our career, the inward-facing piece of it is to know what is our trajectory, right? Where have we been and where do we want to go? Being honest with ourselves, because what happens is even when we we delight somebody, when we get that opportunity and they let us in, we still have to continue to guide their perceptions. People are making judgments not only about who we are, but also where they think we're going to go. They're making judgments about our path, our trajectory, our narrative. And so the guiding piece of it is to guide and steer how they see where you're going, where your trajectory is, so that they can advocate and support you and see how this will sort of play out both for you and for them.
0: So how does somebody develop the self-awareness to pull this off?
1: You know, it is trained and it is practiced. Some people are born with highly sensitive observations of themselves. But people who have been underestimated or disadvantaged or face things in their lives, are particularly empathetic and particularly self-aware, right? Sometimes it's a protective mechanism, but they're very aware of how people are seeing them. And so that's a strength, right? That's a strength that they can use. And it's about reflecting on themselves and letting down those guard, but while also recognizing and being careful to keep ourselves accountable and even healed as we're making these observations.
0: How do you know the criteria that other people are using? In other words, I can do my own diagnostics and learn from people around me Mm -hmm. how I'm perceived. But how do you ensure that you are managing to the criteria that other people are using, say, for a promotion or growth opportunities or to be identified as high talent, whatever aspirations you have, because you can have all the self-awareness in the world, but if you're not matching it up to what people want from you, Mm -hmm. that in many cases you have the ability to deliver. You just don't know that you're being held to that standard. How do you define that? How do you get there?
1: Yeah. I mean, I talk in the book about how a lot of times we're over-prepared Mm -hmm. the best way to sort of dynamically understand that because other people are changing as well, right? Their perceptions are changing at the same time that we're still trying to figure out. And so it's about planning, but not over planning. It's about preparing, but not over preparing. And we tend to veer too much onto being over prepared and having this very rigid view of what we think are the criteria for success or what we think are the perceptions that are being made of us rather than, having this less prepared but more dynamic way that we can sort of toggle and figure it out as we go along. And the more we can do that, the more we're able to absorb more information and use that information in turn. So we create this very healthy cycle rather than this vicious cycle.
0: Give me a quick example of how you've guided other people's perceptions of you.
1: Yeah, you know, I spoke a little bit about some of the research that I've done in the beginning. But you know, in addition to the research where I've shown that there are sort of differences, and there's disadvantages, there are ways that you can really redirect. And when I spoke about, you know, going into an interview situation and saying things like, hey, I know it may seem like X, Y, Z, whatever perceptions you think they have of you, you can say things like, but let me tell you about a time when I fought for resources for my team, right? And you're redirecting their sort of perceptions of who they thought you were. It's simple things, whereas when you see that they're sort of talking to you in a limiting way, you answer their question, but then you very much turn it into a, and then here's where I think it can go. Here are the massive growth opportunities that I think that this company could go in. You're really sort of redirecting. So you're you're listening, you're answering, but then you're redirecting the conversation towards the trajectory that you want them to be taking you in.
0: Got it. So we have EDG. Delight, enrich, guide. Mm-hmm. And then I guess you probably want to call it a small E, lowercase E maybe, <laughs> because you sort of downplay the effort part. So
1: no, I mean, effort comes last, but we tend to think that effort comes first. When you're able to enrich, delight and guide, your effort goes that much further. And that's why it's the last E.
0: Aren't you clever? <laughs> that, seriously, that's really, really. I mean, I didn't put the pieces together in that sense, but obviously you could have begun with it effort. Right. So (laughs) that's a need too. you could have said, here's where we start, but here's how you enhance it. And I love the way you position that. So that's very clever. Thank you. So, Laura, I think, you know, we have a tradition on the podcast where we take a brief break from the conversation and we ask our guests a few questions about them more personally, their interests, influences and life philosophy. And we call this the heartbeat round. So now it's your time to play. And so with each of the questions I'm gonna ask you, we want you to give us your best instinctive answer and respond to each one in a heartbeat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh, okay. (laughs) Uh, All right,
0: here we go. An uncommon leadership trait that gives managers an edge.
1: Oh, compassion.
0: The most challenging or difficult part of writing your first book
1: having to cut out some of the amazing stories because of space limitations.
0: Hmm. Quick example of how someone recently delighted you.
1: So I had just gotten this brutal paper rejection. My husband, he sent me a text message that said, did you know I don't care about how many papers you have? I care about the fact that you always get up and try again.
0: Wow. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> you married the right guy. That's fantastic. Oh, he's going <laughs> to
1: like hearing that part. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> the trait you admire most in other people?
1: Loyalty. I'm big on loyalty.
0: Someone who's a huge source of inspiration to you?
1: Um, my little brother.
0: A great piece of advice for all the entrepreneurs listening in?
1: Celebrate your failures.
0: A prediction about the future you're pretty sure is going to come true? <laughs>
1: Oh gosh. Okay. I'm going to go, I'm going to go big and provocative on this one. Instead of living on the moon, we'll figure out how to live in the depths of the oceans.
0: Wow. (laughs) Okay. Didn't see that coming. That's awesome. (laughs) A skill improvement that you're working on right now.
1: The art of pause. So stopping and pausing.
0: In your communication or in your thinking, where is that applied?
1: Oh, just in general, like being uncomfortable sort of with just a brief pause or just uh, like the tentativeness of something or just taking a deep breath before launching into something.
0: World leader of any era you most admire?
1: Oh, gosh, I don't even know. Um This one's a tough one, because I feel like there's leaders that I admire in certain areas, and then I see them flawed in other areas. And there's just, it's a big ask for any one person to be perfect in all different dimensions. Can I pass on this one?
0: Yeah. And, you know, I'm totally fine with it because the people that I most admire all have flaws. And I think that's helpful for all of us to remember. Right. None of us are going to be perfect. Even Churchill and Gandhi and all the other Mandela and all the names that might have come up. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I I very much admire Nelson Mandela and. When my father first came into the country, his name was Nelson, after Nelson Mandela. But, you know, I recognize that Nelson Mandela was flawed, as was my father, as am I. So, you know, it's hard. It's hard to to come up with one. That's a great question.
0: One book you wish everyone in the world would read?
1: These are These are great questions. One book. Gosh, there's so many. I read all the time. So there's so many books that I love. Well, at this current moment, I wish everyone in the world would would read yes. my book.
0: <laughs> okay, I wish I had so, the plug belt.
1: So Edge, but I also love The Remains of the Day, such mm-hmm. a good book. I love Girl in Translation, I love When the Legends Die. I love I mean just so many books that I love. Flowers for Algernon, I could go on and on.
0: Fantastic. All fiction too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your all-time favorite song.
1: (laughs) Can I pick a genre instead of a song? Sure. Okay. Um, I love what my friends call and make fun of me for. They call high school girl music, which is... (laughs) so like, like
0: Katy perry current or like 20 yeah, years like, ago
1: like Katy perry demi lovato miley cyrus taylor swift i just find it again i find it so perfectly flawed it's like so charming like demi lovato is just so charming in her ways and her music also has that sort of very like you're rooting for them and, it, and it's so so like that high school girl genre it's like so full of hope but yet still so uncertain. Great. <laughs> okay. It's wonderful.
0: Besides love, what does the world need more of?
1: Um, Home-cooked meals.
0: The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Greed. That has never come up, by the way. Really? That's never. Arrogance, number one answer. But greed, can't argue with it.
1: Huh. Quote that
0: captures your life philosophy, if you have one.
1: Oh, so many as well. Geez, How about... You can have it all. You just can't have it all at one time.
0: Wonderful. So that's our final question. And we're going to get back to the conversation. But thank you so much for going through the heartbeat round with me. Laura, before we say goodbye, I'd like to ask if you can summarize how all of your research on creating an edge relates to leadership and being a successful manager, since this is obviously a leadership podcast. And we clearly discussed some of this throughout our discussion, but kind of hoping you might be able to punctuate it in some unique way that we didn't really tap into.
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel like edge is really a key to like personal leadership, right? A leadership in a very personal way. When you create your edge, it means embarking on a journey that includes self-evaluation and reflection, you know, understanding of the world and the systems around us and coming out of the journey is better educated, better equipped, better suited to opening doors through delight to adding value and truly enriching in a way that really is meaningful for you as a leader and guiding others to your way, sort of the peaks that you want to reach.
0: It's a wonderful way to end this. Your book is about to come out in the next few days. And so we wish you tremendous success. It has been a true, to use one of your words, delight having you on the podcast, Laura. Thank you. Really enjoyable. So thank Thank you so very much on behalf of my entire audience. Very, very grateful you joined us.
1: Thanks so much, really appreciate
0: it. Thank you, Laura.
1: All right, take care.
0: You too, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Before we go, I'd like to ask you for a quick favor. If you enjoy our podcast, could you take a moment right now and give us a review on Apple iTunes, not to mention introduce us to some of your friends? Okay, I realize now that I'm really asking you for two favors here, and I promise to stop there. But a review from you will help us gain additional street cred and validation in a world filled with other leadership podcasts. We're trying to stand out, and you can help us make that happen. And by introducing us to members of your tribe you'll greatly help us expand our reach. So that's it. A review and a referral will make my entire team very happy. And speaking of them, I'd like to thank my number one encourager, Ken Boynton, in addition to Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yant, Mirjana Nokovic, and my engineer and producer, Eric Oz. And as always, I leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow, This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now.